0: Welcome to Endless, the Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and sun god Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics
1: Editor, and discarded face ashtray Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, We're going to be talking about Facade, issue 20 from the Sandman comic book series.
0: Facade was written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Colleen Doran, and inked by Malcolm Jones III. Steve O'Lift did the colors, Todd Klein lettered. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Tom Pyre. Cover by Dave McKean. A quick heads up, this issue deals with suicide, depression, and self-harm. If you're not in a place to think about those topics, you may want to skip this episode of Endless.
1: You people always hold on to your old identities, old faces and masks, long after they've served their purpose. But you've got to learn to throw things away eventually. Time to wake up. In Facade, we plunge into the first-person narration of Urania Rainey Blackwell, a chain-smoking, reclusive, deeply traumatized former U.S. intelligence agent living alone in an apartment cluttered with discarded ashtrays that are really the temporary masks she grows to conceal her true face. Our first glimpse of Rainey is of her flicking ash into one of her masks as she tries to reach Mulligan, her veteran's benefit contact on the phone. It's clear that the real benefit he provides is a sense of human contact and concern. But when Mulligan steps out of his professional role for a moment, acknowledging how cute Rainey was before, Rainey instantly pushes for more. I can look like that now, she promises. I can even feel like flesh. Mulligan shuts her down and for a long while, Rainey sits alone in silence, contemplating the emptiness of her existence. When the phone rings again, it's an invitation to lunch from a former colleague. Thrilled and terrified, Rainy dreams of the day five years ago when she was transformed into a being who can transmute herself into any substance. In reality, Rainy went to Egypt, where she touched the orb of Ra and gained the superpowers that cursed her life. In her dreams, which she hates, the sun god Ra himself appears as an immense hawk-headed human figure. She is, he says, one of the brave ones who seek his gift, and so she becomes Element Girl. Even in my dreams, I can't win, thinks Rainy. I hate dreams. The next day, Rainy, who cannot easily turn herself into human flesh, has lunch with her old colleague. The woman, who is 36 and pregnant, says that Rainy hasn't aged at all, then reveals her fear that the baby might be born, as she calls it, a freak. We see some children outside with visible physical challenges, limbs missing or atrophied or malformed. They're just people, Della, says Rainey. When her own silicate mask slips, falling into the spag ball, she runs back to the safety of her apartment. Petrified in misery, Rainey longs for the release of death. How, she asks, then howls. And death appears and sits down beside the miserable woman. Rainy spills out her misery and longing for death, with no idea to whom she is confiding. When death reveals her identity, Rainy is thrilled. Blessed, merciful death, she says, you've come to make it all stop. But death explains she was there for a woman changing a light bulb in the same building. Whoever or whatever decides when your time is up, it's not Dream's chipper older sibling. She's neither merciful nor by extension cruel, And if she's not a curse, well, then neither is she a blessing. She's got a job to do, and she does it. Still, if Rainy wants to die, death has a suggestion. Ask the sun god Ra, who appeared in Rainy's dreams, and is still around, and not only in Egypt. Rainy looks out the window and asks the sun to make her normal. She glimpses the face behind the sun god's mask, and then she is gone, leaving only the shell of herself behind. When Rainey's former benefits coordinator calls back, checking in, Death tells him Rainey is gone. Where? She wouldn't like to say for certain. And who is she? Just a friend? Sometimes. Maybe.
0: All right, so Lisa, here we are—the final issue for uh, for Dream Country, which is kind of exciting—and um, the last of these standalone short stories that are happening in this volume. Um, what did you think of Facade? Oh
1: well, first of all, having gone from no summary to the war and peace of summaries, <laughs> I, you know, I, I I tried to condense it, but there was so much here to unpack.
0: I yes, mean, by popular demand, by... the summaries have returned. Yes. So. Uh, and that's, you know, it's all, it's all an experiment. We're just, you know, we're building this track. We're laying down track as the train is coming. And so we've we've gone back to it. It now.
1: turned so, out yeah. the plane needed that wing. That little piece was necessary. Um, <laughs> so anyway, this story, I think, can be read as, you know, the, the story of a wounded uh, war veteran. It can be the story of a beautiful woman dealing with an illness that makes her feel less than human, despite her considerable abilities, you know, and it can, it can be read as a story about the prisons we build for ourselves. Uh, But in this endless pandemic season, it feels more resonant to me now than it
0: actually did 30 years ago. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. There was a lot in Rainey's story that, that you can really empathize with. And I had a lot of empathy for her and for the ways in which she was suffering while at the same time also seeing... You know other perspectives on on that, um, and this is like another kind of difficult story to engage with. I, I was you know familiar with it. I'd listened to the audiobook when I was driving my kid back and forth from Columbus, Ohio, and um, and so I'd heard it performed and sort of had a sense of it. But this is the first time I'd actually read the comic book. And the deeper I went into it, and there's something about, I think, the, um, if I was just reading it, you know, and just kind of like moving through the series, I think I might move a little faster. Over this one, you know, like here's all the stuff I didn't know. I don't know who Element Girl is. I had to look that up. You know, I don't have that history. Um, but but coming through it, uh, reading it for the purposes of this podcast, and knowing that we were going to discuss it in depth, um, the deeper I looked into it, the more I actually thought about it. The more I really enjoyed it. Um, I really enjoyed death you know, this being kind of a death story, which is really fun to spend. It's always fun to spend time with death. Um, And once I started getting into the etymology of Metamorph, which I will pull out from my magical hat a little later in the podcast, um, I actually grew to really kind of love this one.
1: Yeah, I think that there is a way in which I did not connect with this as powerfully back in the 90s. (laughs) This time... I, I maybe it's being older, maybe it's having accrued some more losses, but mm-hmm. I, I felt really moved by it and I felt, you know, how wonderful it is to have as, as, as the embodiment of death, a character who is as refreshingly upbeat as a Christmas Hallmark rom-com. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. I love death. She's so, so fun. And I really I love how um, how balanced and philosophical she is, you know, just cheerful, philosophical. Her job is to comfort, you know, at the moment of death. She's there to like help people kind of cross over. But she really is a source of comfort and and safety even though you're in the least safe moment of your life your death you know um which i think is really a kind of an interesting type of character to place in that position um but before we get into talking deeply about the story let's start as we always do with dave mckean's art um there's a couple of different things there are some um really really beautiful illustrations that i am completely in love with that are part of the overall volume um Of Dream Country, which I would highly, highly recommend. I have the 30th anniversary edition, and I am in love with the art there. But for today, let's just talk about the cover for this uh, particular um, issue. Um, We have these, you know, this cover. It's lovely, bluish green tones. There's a a very watery kind of sense of movement. Uh, A woman with green hair, and the hair is moving almost like ripples of water. Um, A white mask. She's holding a white mask to her face uh, with these delicate hands, but the fingertips are sharp. They have kind of the hint, at least to me, of claws. Um, and below the mask that she's wearing are other masks that she has discarded with different expressions on them. And then below those, there are pieces of mask falling away that have almost this Picasso esque sort of feel where the face is broken up into these like distinct shapes. Um, I believe that's Cubist, but please let me, you know, show. Show my ignorance here. I have absolutely no idea. I know nothing about art, as all of you who listen to me talk about art already know. So it's not like I'm, you know, revealing something about myself. Um, But behind the woman, off to the right side of the illustration, um, there is something under the ripples of hair. Um, kind of to the side of her face. And it looks to me like a uh, like it's kind of like whitish fur. It almost has a sense of like a stuffed bear or a fuzzy pillow. It's something very soft and looks comforting, but it's also like she can't see it. It's right there and she can't see it. And I don't know if that's something that's intended if it's supposed to be a bear if it's supposed to be like a stuffed animal or a fuzzy pillow or whatever Um, but I find it so incredibly interesting I absolutely love this cover and then for the first time I think, at least the first time that I can recall, um, we get an actual excerpt of of dialogue from the um, story itself. In the early pages of the story, uh, we get this quote, I smoke a cigarette and I pretend I'm normal and I wish I were dead. Um, And that is in this like handwritten, you know, white scrawl. It's really kind of neat. Um, And I have to say, like, all of the art in Dream Country, um, and especially the covers in the 30th anniversary. Guys, I cannot recommend enough. Go take a look at that. I think they're they're all by Dave McKean, are just so beautifully to my taste. These are drawings that were absolutely made to delight me, and I love this artwork. Yeah, I, I know what you mean.
1: For an issue that is dealing with someone who feels ugly and inhuman, it's a beautiful cover. The masks yeah. remind me a little of the masks of comedy and tragedy. And Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I could, I could frame that and hang it on my wall and live with it happily day after day. I also, Mm -hmm. um, I know that you're a a fan of Colleen Doran's uh, artwork Mm -hmm. as well. And I, I think it's, it's really interesting. I mean, when she started drawing this issue, she um, Mm -hmm. was, I think, very young. She's, she is, was and is a beautiful, beautiful woman And I love the fact that she can obviously draw a menacing sun god with all the muscle and kinetic force you want. But to my mind, you know, what really sets her apart is how she really conveys the human side of the grotesque. You know, Mm -hmm. so we've got all these crazy things happening with Rainy turning into different substances. But... Mm -hmm. You get, you know, the 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 postures of despair, the nuances, the 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 pacing of this very still issue in which not a lot happens, not a lot of external things happen. So that body language and the facial expression nuances is really really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that uh, she's she's drawing real women. You know, Della, who's in the restaurant with her, you can see all the little details of personality in the hair and and wardrobing um mm-hmm. in high bender's book the i think that's the sandman companion and that book was done more or less contemporaneously with with the sandman mm-hmm. whereas the i think some of the other books about i guess my king of dreams was uh, as well and some of the others have come after um but anyway in high bender's book neil said he thought colleen you know, he saw her work, saw the potential, um, saw that she was being underused. And, um, and he points out that she did an amazing job, and that Malcolm Jones, the did a really wonderful job inking her because, you mm-hmm. know, an inker can either obliterate someone's style or really work with and enhance, I guess it's, you know, It's like makeup in a sense. And then I know that some people, you know, wear makeup and you can barely see what the face is underneath. So, he, you know, he uh, he did not mask, um, but he added this uh, grungy, raggedy quality that really suits the the story. Yeah. And um, Bender has this other little interview with Colleen about what she did, the methods she used to convey this, um, this. Whole story and and you know it's called method drawing. I don't know if they just said that. Oh my god! Yeah, sort mm-hmm. of jokingly, but I loved hearing that. And I've been yeah. actually I've been increasingly interested in using method acting techniques in in my writing. So, but mm-hmm. so Colleen, I guess, uh, said that she and Neil first of all she and Neil spent hours discussing the subtleties of Rainey's facial expressions and her positioning in each panel. Um, Colleen herself acted out each scene in front of a mirror to see what her own body did. And the result is you get page after page of little or no dialogue or captions. And you just really have to read the artwork. It's so rare to get Mm -hmm. silent panels that work that well when the artist and the writer are different people. You know, if the writer and the artist are the same person. But that is, I I feel like I, I used to say... That the, the silent panel is like the simultaneous orgasm of comics in that the stars have to align, you know, just right. And it's the thing you want. It's yeah. a lot of writers, if they come from prose, they want to cram as many words as possible into the panel. Right, sure. And I'm like, oh no, you know, that big brass ring is the silent panel because when it works, you've done all your work, but you've done all your work off stage. As a writer.
0: Yeah. And no, the negative space, leaving that negative space within any piece of art, right? There's always a, a, like, there's so much that can be expressed by just taking a beat taking a breath, having a silence, having a character not say something instead of saying something. So, yeah, that is a really, really incredible thing. And to have them to be able to kind of like pull off that double dutch, you know, where you've got a writer seeing one thing and then the artist another and being able to work together. Um, I discovered uh, Colleen through Neil. Actually, I follow him on Twitter and he retweets her stuff. She's been doing some artwork on some fairy tale stuff that he uh, he had done. And um, it, the artwork struck me as um, so beautiful. And so I immediately followed her and I just absolutely love her, her work. And again, like I am somebody who knows nothing about art. Like I have no taste. I know nothing. I just like, I know what I love. You know, I know what looks good to me and what I enjoy. And, and she is kind of, I think, one of those artists that was specifically made to delight me. Like I just love all of her stuff. And it is part of that. There is that. I hadn't realized it, that that was what I was responding to in her work. But it is that, lovely beauty with teeth Mm. right which i think is something that harmonizes really well with neil because he does a lot of that he'll do a lot of these things that are like deep emotion or funny or whatever and then but the teeth are always Mm -hmm. there and i think that that's something that makes this work um kind of really resonate um i i love having death here. I, and the thing is that this is, you know, here we've got, you know, I think this is our, am I correct? a first female artist working on Sandman? Yes,
1: I, I as, as far as I'm aware, yes. I, I also just want to go back and say to Neil's credit, you know, I know of artists who say to me, you know, oh, I got to work with this uh, writer, and I always wanted to work with this writer. But, you know, they were, you know, they, they were like, that's my script that's it. You know, you don't talk to me. It's all in the script. Mm -hmm. I, you know, just, just draw what I, what I gave you. And Mm -hmm. the fact that Neil was in such close communication that he was willing to do the back and forth and willing to create all these silent panels. I think it's such a good model for, for collaborative storytelling.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's truly what it is. You know, I mean, it is an extremely collaborative, um, I think, mode, form for storytelling and being a collaborative person. I think is essential to that kind of thing. I have thought about comics. I'm not sure I'm a collaborative person. I like writing novels. I like having to control over everything. But I really respect that that ability to kind of uh, play it back and forth, you know, and I think that that is a sign of a, um, of a confident artist, you know, to be able to say, here's what I've got, let's spin it and see where it goes. Okay, but back to Colleen Doran. Here we have a story that is a it is a woman's story. We've got you know Rainy is our main character. Death um, features prominently. Uh, her friend Della is you know kind of part of this whole mishmash. Um, and it being a feminine story, there are times when. Um, you know, when there's a story written by somebody who doesn't share the identity where you can kind of feel that you can kind of sense it. And I didn't feel that here. I felt a lot of empathy. I felt a lot of understanding. I, I kind of, as somebody who suffers from body dysmorphia, um, which is not exactly what she's got, cause she's got superpowers, but I have a, an issue where I can't see myself clearly because, you know, trauma and whatever. Um, and, uh, and so like, I have sympathy for that and I feel like there was some of that that was the feeling of it, the helplessness of it, that feeling of not being able to control anything. Um, I really felt very accurately portrayed in Rainy. And that's that's kind of an incredible thing to be able to do that. And I I appreciated, I mean, I don't know that it made a difference. I can't say at all that, you know, Colleen would have done better than, you know, like Mike or, you know, whoever else might have been working on this. But there's something about having a woman doing these drawings that made me really feel like, um, that, that there was somebody who got it, who really understood it, even though in Neil's script, I think that he, he was able to empathize with it definitely enough. And it felt very real to me, you know? Um, and, uh, so let's talk a little bit about death, because death is featuring fairly prominently in this issue, which does not have dream in it. We talk of dreams, but it's not dream who's here, it's death. Yeah, and
1: it it really is an issue that to me harkens back to that line that dream says to his sister in issue eight, he says, and I am far more terrible than you, my sister. And mm-hmm. here we get a whole issue that shows a person for whom, you know, dream is the thing to be feared and death, mm-hmm. the 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 escape and, and the relief that she's seeking. Um, but, you know, then we, we also have to contend with the fact that death isn't here for the person who wants, maybe needs her. She's there for some poor woman who fell off her stepladder changing a light bulb, which is always, <laughs> I have to say, the way I fear I'm gonna go. Um, oh, I'm certainly <laughs> gonna go that way. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm going to go buy hardware. I don't know. So, yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, and there's the sense I get that death for all of her charm and her empathy, she's also wearing a mask here, the mask of the pretty human goth girl that, mm-hmm. you know, kind of conceals her elemental otherness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we learn a bunch about death. There's always world building, no matter how quiet and... Um, you know, part of Neil's stories are very literary. They're often quiet mm-hmm. stories of epiphany, these short stories. But even in these quiet epiphany stories, there's always this world building that adds yeah. to the Sandman mythology. So let's go through some of the things that we that we found here. Uh, mm-hmm. We found, first of all, that death's uh, function in the Sandman universe is that, you know, everything dies eventually. And when the last mm-hmm. living thing dies... Death will be there to close things down as she says to turn off the lights, close the door, mm-hmm. um, which might make her eventually the the loneliest entity. Mm-hmm. You know, if she, to be the last one is is sort of, yeah, not an, an, uh, not the easiest thing. She also uh, lets us know that mythologies take longer to die than people believe. So a lot of the mm-hmm. old gods are still around. Still kicking. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says oblivion is not an option. So when, when Rainey is asking for oblivion, if that's not an option, it implies that whatever happens after death is something, mm-hmm. but not yeah. something that death cares to reveal or maybe not something she can reveal. The language here is a little ambiguous. She says, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't like to say for certain.
0: Yeah. So that
1: sounds like there's a choice in there. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's an implication here that there is some reincarnation of some aspect, at least, of one's essential self. Because Mm -hmm. death says to Rainey, better luck next time.
0: Better luck next time. Yeah. Which is, I think, really... Um, kind of an interesting idea. And all of this and it is some really lovely world building. And we get, you know, actually a little speechifying from death. I, I almost had a, a sense of grapes of wrath. When, you know, when somebody falls off their chair trying to change a light bulb, I'll be there. When somebody, <laughs> yeah. you know, sticks a fork in a toaster, I'll be there. Um and then the idea that like she'll be the one to turn out the lights. And the thing is that 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 when everything else is gone, when everyone else is gone, I think the presumption is that so will her brothers and sisters, her siblings, right? Absolutely. They'll all be gone, yeah. too. So she will be the last one. Um, and, and, you know, we talk about, like you said, that uh, Morpheus said, you're far more terrible or I'm far more terrible than you are, but everybody fears you. Um, and it's interesting, too, because this is the one issue of Dream Country where Morpheus isn't present at all. Right. We don't have him here at all, except this this one moment where she's talking about dreams, you know, Um, and the bad dreams are nightmares. And that's fine. She's fine with the nightmares. The terrible dreams are the ones where she's normal and happy Mm -hmm. and then she has to wake up, you know, and um, and I thought that that was such a lovely kind of turn on the all the ways in which dreams can can cause us pain, you know, can be difficult, you know. Um, and I thought that was a, a really kind of a neat little turn in there. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about masking. Yeah, I thought this was
1: interesting. I mean, I, I, Rainey obviously is, is masking. That is, she's creating mm-hmm. facades to present a more typical face to the world. And uh, I, have learned not too long ago that it's also a term that autistic people or people on the spectrum or neurodivergent people use to describe the act of presenting a more neurotypical set of behaviors to the world. Mm-hmm. And it it, yeah. it is an effort. It is, it, you know, it it feels, um, I think, not good. You know, all of us yeah. want to be seen and accepted for who we are. So that kind of masking um, is...
0: It takes a lot of energy, like she says, that the, that she can put the mask on, yeah. but then eventually it just falls off. And I think that when when you have to engage in masking behaviors in order to have some sense of acceptance... It is going to fall off because it's exhausting. It's drawing a lot of energy for you to be able to do that.
1: Absolutely, and I think you know, for for me and anyone who kind of uh, unofficially felt they belonged on the island of misfit toys, <laughs> I think we all had that sense of of not always, you know, uh, of learning how to to present a more normal face mm-hmm. to the world, and. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this recently. I I think that for this this issue, to me, has sort of two aspects to it. You can see it mm-hmm. clearly as you know, depression and the feeling of having to present a false face. But mm-hmm. there's also, I think, a sense of all of us who f- have felt different, um, who have felt freakish, you know, and mm-hmm. there's that feeling of trying to seem normal in in that sense. So it's it's I feel like I have a more um, deep appreciation. I think I've said that before, but I, I don't know that I I saw as much in this story when I was in my twenties as I do now.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I of course haven't read it in my twenties, but um, but I can see how you know how sometimes that element that that idea of masking you can read it just the way that it is in the story, or you can read it as a metaphor. You know, and and what it really means and what it really kind of speaks to. And I think that that's an interesting read on that. Um, And one of the things, too, that I sort of got into while I was thinking about this was um, that she is a metamorph you know, um, that that is the name of what she is. And so I started thinking about metamorph, like what is, you know, what's the etymology of this, right? Because there's nothing in the world I love more than etymology. And I know nothing. Again, this is another place where I'm showing my ass. Like I, I know nothing about etymology. I look it up online and then I just believe whatever the Google tells me is true. Um, just don't get it ch- tattooed on you until you have. Exactly. Because it, it, it's pr- I, I'm not a reliable narrator here. Um, But anyway, so according to my Google foo, uh, she is a metamorph. Metamorph means change plus shape. And the irony, of course, is that she's miserable because she cannot change, you know, because she has changed and she's trying to hold on to this like old life. And so I, I thought it was a really interesting um, kind of thing when I started getting to the thing, and then I was thinking about Morpheus, right? Because morph is the shape. I always read morph as the root that it meant change, but that's not what it means. So when I think of metamorphosis, when I thought, it, you know, when I read Kafka in like high school or whatever, you know, I always thought that the morph was the changing that is always read that way to me. But Morpheus is, is the Morpheus in the Greek is the maker of shapes. Right. He spins out the dreams and the stories and all of that, which makes that um, that name a little more meaningful to me. Um, But this this idea that uh, that death kind of throws out at her um, that you make your own hell. Right. We have actually a couple of messages from death here, which I find really interesting. Um, One is about giving up and letting go. She says, you people always hold on to your identities, old faces and masks long after they've served their purpose. Uh, But then she's like, you know, YOLO, live the moment. Right. Everything here, everything dies eventually. Like there's no rush. You know, you're going to die eventually anyway. So you might as well just experience the experience. And then she says, and you make your own hell." And this is an idea that kind of st- like stood out to me um, while I was reading it because I both really like and really don't like this idea. You make your own hell, um, and I think the problem for me in it is really a cultural problem. Um, is that we in America. Um, This is a very American attitude. I'm not sure how much more of the Western world has infected. I can only speak to my personal experience. Uh, We have this very like blame centric, you know, kind of attitude um, where an idea like this is basically summing up, well, it's your own damn fault. And there's something about saying, well, it's your own damn fault that for some in in a lot of ways is like, I refuse to feel sorry for you because you made your bed. Now you got to lie in it as though... People whose choices have not turned out the way that they thought they would somehow deserve their pain and suffering, which is something I just don't subscribe to. I don't. It's such a cold way of looking at things. And I mean, sure, sometimes our hells are of our own making, but that doesn't mean that we don't deserve compassion and empathy. But here we have death who says this thing, but exhibits the exact compassion and empathy that I really love Which is available also in this idea, you make your own hell. Um, And here it feels like the, the idea behind it isn't, well, it's your own damn fault. So, you know, the hell with you and you deserve to suffer. But that there's hope here. You make your own hell, you can unmake it. Um, there's hope and there's personal agency. And yes, sometimes our hells are our own fault. Sometimes they're not. Either way, if you're in hell, you deserve empathy and compassion. And you also deserve hope and the knowledge that you can pull yourself out of hell. You know, that you can do it. It it, it can be a choice. Um so part of it is that she's holding on to, you know, we have the misery, the old masks that she won't throw away. We have death commenting on that, her old self, um, that Rainey will not release who she was so that she can be who she is. You know, um, she doesn't need to die. She just needs to let go of what she thought her life would be. She is living a dead life. And when I say that, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've always had this idea, like, you know, I look at my kids who are full grown, Right. And the toddler that they once were is gone. Like that That person is gone. The elementary school kid that they once were, gone, right? And we all go through these deaths of ourselves throughout our life. Are we metamorphose, metamorphosize? I'm sure that's a word, whatever, roll with it. Um, th- the shape of us changes, you know? Um, and so sometimes, it can be really hard to let go of the old self, you know, especially if you weren't ready for that change. If it came on very suddenly, um if it was shocking, if it was traumatic, you know, the time in my life when I was most suicidal uh, was when I had an experience like that very suddenly, and I wasn't ready. To let it all go and move on. I I described it. I have a podcast called Big Strong Yes where I talked a lot about that experience. And one of the really beautiful things that I pulled out of that, which still is so incredibly meaningful to me, is I I always I felt for years like I was I was reaching back in time and trying to stop. You ever dropped something and broken something that's incredibly precious to you, mm. you know, and you just think. And you have that feeling like you want to go back in time. Um, What I had done, what had happened in my life was this breaking of something that was very precious to me. It didn't just affect me. It affected my kids. It was, it was really, really devastating. Um, And so a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Kelly Jones, who I did the podcast with was talking about kintsugi, which is the art of the Japanese art of taking a broken thing and, and fixing it with gold and making it even more beautiful for being broken. Um, and eventually I was able to move through it and accept the fact that my life is now Kintsugi, you know, it is more beautiful. It is so much better now than it was. Um, and I cannot undo the broken parts, you know, that's just something that's not available to me and accepting that was really, really difficult. And so I, I think part of that, that maybe why I love this issue as much as I do, because I see that in her i recognize that experience i have empathy for how that feels that the hell yes was of my own making but i had to process my way through it i had to work through it i had to find the gold in order to bond all the broken pieces until i could function again you know and you know that is one of the i think most valuable and important purposes of fiction is It helps going through stories like this can help you process your own trauma, your own broken parts, your own precious thing that you're trying to reach back in time to prevent breaking, but it's already broken, you know? Um, And so I see this in Rainy. And even though her ending is the one that I wouldn't want for her, I understand it. You know, like I understand. I remember what that felt like. That sense of hopelessness, that sense of every day I wake up and the terrible dreams are the good ones where everything is okay again. And then you wake up and you're in this hell again. Like I remember what that daily experience was like and my empathy and compassion for her so elicited in this story, which also allows me to have empathy and compassion for myself. And again, like, this is what I'm like, when I talk about stories and why I love them so much and why they matter to me so much, like, this is exactly it because they do, you talk about these things and it allows you to heal and it allows you to, to, you have empathy for somebody else and you see yourself in them and then you can have empathy for yourself. It's fucking magic. (laughs) But I, anyway, so I really, really enjoyed this story. I, you know, it ends really, really sadly, But I know that experience. I remember that experience. It was uh, incredibly moving to read through it. Um, And quickly before I move away from this subject, for anybody out there listening, um, life is hard. Depression is the absolute worst. It makes life feel impossible. And the desire for the pain to stop is incredibly real. If you are out there and you are feeling bad enough to want to call on the sun god Ra and make it all end, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. It is 1-800-273-8255. I will also put that number in the show notes. Put it on your speed dial if you have to. Life is hard, but it is also precious. I know how depression feels. I know how wanting to die feels, but I promise you this, life is full of surprises. And the first time I felt joy again after all of that darkness was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Joy is possible. It really is. Hang in there if you can. So I just wanted to have that message while we're talking about all of this um, stuff. It's it's very very difficult. Uh, try to have some compassion for yourself. Um, anyway, so now I've I've wandered wildly off, but now we're back in the story. So come come save me from myself, Elisa, <laughs> Pick it up. <laughs> well, perhaps we should take a little detour into Lucien's library. Oh my God, let's let's let's. I love Lucien's library. It's my favorite part. <laughs> So, you know, one of the things that I was
1: thinking about, a lot of times people sort of separate, um, you know, literary stories and superhero stories as if these are yes. on two very, you know, opposite sides of the spectrum. And I think that Neil's interest in superheroes, we can see here, is to use them as as ways to get at these very personal intimate Mm -hmm. stories about depression about despair about struggling with creativity you know and and stuff that we find very relatable and i think that these stories don't work even though there's a superhero in them they they work better in the same way that uh fairy tales can work better Mm -hmm. because of the fairy tale elements Mm -hmm. but uh at this point uh I think Neil has confessed that he was just sick of of dealing with continuity issues, because in the beginning of Sandman, as we have talked about, he did include more superheroes. And he just said in Sandman 5, there was the hassle of continuity. He had wanted to write the Joker into Arkham Asylum and continuity issues. So he had to change him for the Scarecrow. Uh, he wrote a, a swamp thing annual i think in 1987 and he wanted to write captain adam but wound up having to change him for the firestorm the nuclear man and change dialogue and he was thinking all right this is stupid i don't want to play continuity is is not what i'm writing this for but his secret weapon was finding characters that other people had completely <laughs> forgotten about so Every part of the pig. Every <laughs> part of the pig. So ironically, Neil probably discovered Element Girl in the pages of The Brave and the Bold, a series mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is, is looked down upon by many comic book purists because uh, there was not a lot of attention paid to continuity. So mm-hmm. the main uh, writer of, of that, it was sort of a team up Batman comic, I believe, was Bob Haney. And, um, and Bob Haney, I think he said, did not care about continuity, according to Neil, a jot or a tittle. Not a titty, a tittle. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Bob Haney and artist uh, Ramona Fraden created Element Girl in the 60s, by the way. Ah. So Neil was looking through, DC had a publication called Who's Who?, and it would, you know, run down the characters and the stats. So you'd get Supergirl and you'd get her powers and her backstory, as it was at the time. I think sometimes I remember complaining about some of the heights and weights. I was like, wait a minute. She's five nine and 120 pounds. I, I think she needs an infusion or whatever it was. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> (laughs) Just pin her down and, you know, give her a chance to eat. Uh, Mm -hmm. But anyway, so in the Who's Who, you get this rundown. And when Neil realized that Element Girl had been left out of uh, the Who's Who, he said, I could strike like a snake. And... um, (laughs) he also uh found prez in the same way prez the teenage Mm -hmm. president uh who is now of course the 36 year old prime minister of finland who went out clubbing without her phone and missed an important message that she was supposed to be quarantining herself but that's another story (laughs) so anyway um so he figured this is this is good i can use element girl and and continuity is not going to be an issue And from that, Mm -hmm. we can see that he both loved the magic of superheroes, but he was using them to get at these universal um, and and, and very human concerns, story concerns. Um, This leads me to the teen Neil story. Yes, boys and girls, this is a story (laughs) of the teenage Neil. Uh, He discovered the Brave and the Bold in this little Mm -hmm. basement comic book store in Clapton in East London. Uh, So he says that one of his friends got a hold of a zine. So these zines were these very DIY little uh, magazines with some stories and artwork and reviews. And this one advertised comics for sale. So on the last day of school, uh, there was a half day and Neil and his friends pooled their money, took buses and trains and got to this store, which was in a a little basement. And it was run by a guy called Alan Austin, who both owned the store and put out the zines. And uh, I just did a little reading uh, about Alan Austin. He was one of the most respected figures in British comic book fandom. And uh, I think it says that he was the first full-time comic book seller. Is that, I think, yes. Wow. Um, But he also was instrumental in turning Neil into the writer he became when he rejected a 15- or 16-year-old Neil's drawings, uh, would not include (laughs) them in the zine. So, um... Yeah, it's it's funny because I I don't think I had known that Neil had wanted to be a comic book artist. Maybe I'd known it Mm -hmm. and forgotten it. You know, you get to an age where, you know, did I know it and forget it or never know it? I don't know. But (laughs) but Neil, like a lot of really good comic book writers knows mm-hmm. how to do that basic layout of a panel, can really, you know, has trained himself to yeah. see very visually. And I am such a, a strong believer in in building those skills. And I think, you know, when, mm-hmm. it's funny, I, I do the same thing you talk about, you know, I don't know art and I don't know this, and everyone says they can't draw. We always talk <laughs> about it as though it's an incurable illness, lack of draw Art, art <laughs> ignorance, nothing can come, you know, and th- the truth is, I I think that, you know, you're, you're learning more about art, I learned a lot more just being on the job. And I remember that when I started mm-hmm. to have these art books to do, I, you know, I was so young that I it just seemed normal to me that I was an imposter, but I would go around mm-hmm. to the artist and I would say, okay, please help me so I don't sound completely ignorant. Um, yes. But, you know, but I think that this is part of what we can do with comics is we can we can embrace the artwork and learn more about it. And it, it, it you know, sorry, I feel like I'm so poxy, but, you know, it makes us better writers, better storytellers when we pay attention
0: to the visual. Oh, absolutely. And I've never been one to pay attention to the visual when I when I tell my stories, I write very much from this happened, and this happened, and this is how they felt and this where the emotions were. And um, so I find that the experience of reading all of these comic books and thinking not just about how the art is expressing the story, but also how how efficiently the story is being expressed through the artwork, how much the words are like the, the words are allowing the art to, to carry, also a lot of the story. Um, it's been a wonderful experience to me. my thing is, is that like you know, if you talk to me about like Art Deco or like anything that like art people are supposed to know, like I don't know anything. But you know, but learning, um, learning how to think more visually, I think, is a really, really valuable thing. And as now, I'm going back into starting to write again, which is very exciting because uh, I haven't been able to do that for a while. Um, I really love what the experience of doing this podcast and and really digging into and thinking very consciously and very deliberately about the art. What that does for for me as a writer, I'm going to be very interested to see how that understanding that awareness like influences the ways in which I write. So, I mean, I can I can absolutely recommend for any writers out there to engage with forms with which you are unfamiliar as much as possible. Because because those are the forms that have the most to teach you.
1: Yeah. And and not to be scared of, of not yeah. being good at something, although that's definitely easier to say than to do. I, I also yeah. wanted to talk about depression as well. Um, mm-hmm. Neil has said that this is really a story about depression. And in Hyde Bender's book, he says, what it's really about is someone whose life has just shrunk You want to say to the person, but you're amazingly cool and powerful. You can do anything. And yet you're living in a one room flat, scared to get out. Mm -hmm. But from Rainey's perspective, he said she's stuck in a body that's no longer even remotely human. Mm -hmm. And Neil went on to say that he didn't think her solution was the correct one, but he felt that the ending worked in the context of the story. Yeah. And you know, I just found myself reflecting about how this story hits me so differently in the time of COVID because suddenly we're all, you know, at different times we've been stuck in indoors and in, some people have been quarantined in in, in one room and mm-hmm. it's it's really put people um you know, out of control of 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 things. So I I Going to be so fascinated to see how Element Girl is transformed not only by being, you know, acted by human actors, but also by the fact that we we're living, you know, we're living
0: through an Element Girl moment. Yeah, no, we absolutely are living through an element girl moment. And um, and again, like, you know, being able to activate that compassion for that experience um, and and death, the way that death comes in and talks to her with so much compassion. You know, so much empathy and like, yeah, the reality of your situation is this, and it's difficult, it sucks. But I'm here, and we can talk, and all of that, and that sometimes just making yourself available—not um, just when other people are suffering, but when you're suffering—and being able to to kind of talk about it, I think, I think this is a a nice. You know, I mean, as sad as the story is, I think it's a really important story to um, to engage with at this particular moment. I think it's it's incredibly valuable. Um, one of the things, as long as we're in Lucien's library, um, you know, I looked up Element Girl. I found out her history and like where she was and where she was used. And of course, it was just in this little part. And so I love that Neil plucked her from obscurity and brought her into this. Um, but there was also another character. There's Della Cariacus, right? So, okay, there are certain clues that I look for to, to, like, find somebody in the bowels of DC, right? You know, it's like that they have a specific name. Um, this this character, like, has all the trademarks of every part of the pig character pulled from somewhere else in the DC Comics universe. So I got all excited and did some, you know, digging, and all I could find were the Kyriakuses from Days of Our Lives in the 80s, which of which I'm also familiar because I watched it then. Um, and I found... Nothing. I couldn't find any evidence of this character existing anywhere else. So here is my headcanon in the story... For element girl before this right she was in love with metamorpho rex mason who dumped her for another woman whom he married i think he cheated on this woman he was going to marry her cheated on her with uh rainy then left rainy to go back and marry that woman originally i believe that is the story that i found you know deep in the bowels of google um and here we have this story where Della shows up She's pregnant by a married man. It's Rex. And it's good that Rainy never found out because, oh boy. Um, So anyway, I'm just saying that is my headcanon right now is that Della is pregnant by Rex who dumped Rainy and is married to somebody else now. I I think that is...
1: When you start writing comics, I think that's (laughs) going to be like Lainey, you know, bringing the days of our lives, Kyriakis, fusion
0: to the element girl story. I'm here for it. Oh, my God. I would absolutely do that. I don't think that DC is going to come calling on me to like do that, but I will be in the fan fiction pages and pulling that together. That'd be really fun. All right. So, Elisa, here we are at the end where we get to do my favorite part of the show, which is where we talk about our favorite parts of the issue. What is your favorite page from this? Well, it's got to be the face in the
1: Bolognese. You know, I just... <laughs> who hasn't just lost their face in the Bolognese?
0: Yeah. Um Yeah.
1: By the way, the British say "spagball," which is even oh. even better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just also it is both comic and tragic, and the mm-hmm. way that we are in Rainey's point of view as the mask slips oh, and the eye yeah. slips, and then suddenly we change to get Della's reaction. I, you know, it it was and and like all truly humiliating moments in an elegant you know italian restaurant it it just <laughs> uh, it, i i cannot wait to
0: see that one played out for real how- oh my god that's gonna be so interesting to see how that that goes in the tv show um i have to say I, my favorite was this the panels at the bottom of this one page um where uh, it's in the beginning of the story she's sitting after she called mulligan and we see her in the same position and there's three panels but it's just the light is changing so nothing is changing. Her position isn't changing. Her expression isn't changing. It's just the light as the day moves through her while she just sits there and doesn't move. It is such a beautiful representation of her experience.
1: And, you know, in light of the ending, it makes us think yeah. that light, that is the sun. Yeah. That is her back is to the sun her, in that
0: pan. Her those back panels.
1: is to the source of her pain and her potential salvation.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's really incredibly just beautifully done. Um, all right, so which bigger part of the story? Oh, I think it's got to be that moment where
1: Colleen Doran's so beautiful drawing of death, and she's got Rainey's mask face yeah. partially over, and she's looking out at us at at Rainey. And it's just a, a really lovely reminder that death is also not what she appears to be. She's not just this lovely, cheerfully gamine goth girl. She's not, you know, she, mm-hmm. she has more reason to be depressed than anyone in creation. And yet she has, you know, existentially chosen to be uh, an optimist.
0: Yeah which I think is really nice. And of course, that's what makes death stories in the Sandman universe so incredibly fun and cheerful. Like even here, a a story about depression and giving up and suicide and all of this stuff, we've got death here just kind of bringing light. And of course it is the light in the end that ends up being the thing that both saves Rainy and kills her. Um, So I think it's just really fascinating. So, Bubula, and what was your favorite part? (laughs) I have to say, I love when Death says, the serpent that never dies is dead. You know, she's talking about this fight that Ra, and Ra is still making these warriors like Element Girl to fight this battle that has been over for millennia, and he just doesn't know it or doesn't want to accept it or whatever. Um, And this little bit of uh, frustration from Death, The lack of patience with this bullshit, you know. Um, There's something about that that is just so delightful. And again, it's one of those things that, like, this story doesn't need that. But it was such a nice element to have in it. You know, just this, oh, my God, will y'all just get over yourselves? The serpent that never dies is dead. Can that
1: be our new catchphrase? (laughs) Like, if I am going on about something and it's like, can you just
0: say to me, like, Elisa, the serpent that never dies is dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I love for that to be a catchphrase. I think that's wonderful. If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag Endless Podcast, or send your comments or questions to endless at chipperish.com.
1: This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin. Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stephania. And this week's special message for our power producers, Oblivion isn't an option, I'm afraid.
0: To find out how you too can support Chiprish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or keep bringing the metamorphae into existence even though the battle they fought ended ages ago. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish Content Editor Jack
1: Cram. Jack, you look incredible, hon. You haven't aged a single day. You must. Tell me your secret. We're taking some time off for the holidays, but we'll be back on January 4th with Season of Mist's prologue, issue 21 of the Sandman series. Until then, okay, I'll help you if you want. That's what I get for getting involved.